Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! They're all completely gassed! They've given it everything on the global bucket! Oh, yeah! Oh! oh! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic championship. Ready? Hello, fans of Shiklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you? I am very jealous. You got an official polo shirt. It's not a polo shirt. Oh. I didn't get an official polo shirt. But I did get to check off one of the things that was on the officiating or volunteer jobs we do list from Tokyo 2020. And now I think we should compile those lists and make them happen. Because I did not expect to get to do this, but I did. That's actually a good idea. So we'll make a full list and this will be our officiating slash volunteer bucket list. Sounds good. All right. So what happened was the U.S. Masters Swimming Nationals Long Course Championships was in the Cleveland area. It was at the Spire Institute, which has or had some affiliation as a USOPC training site because you see the sign still on the highway, but you do not see any kind of affiliation within the institute itself. But it is a big complex. They have a beautiful Mirtha pool. So they had the championships there. Master swimming is anything after, I think, 18. And you can just swim. There were people in, I believe, their 80s swimming. And there were people who were relatively old who were swimming in their first meets ever. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes. Yes. So it's very exciting. And I volunteered for it through the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission. And one of the jobs that they were looking for volunteers was backup lane timers. I don't know why. This was the one that was the hardest to fill. They were constantly looking for lane timers, apparently, during the whole thing. Other other jobs got filled quite easily. But who wouldn't want to have a stopwatch in their hand? I was going to say, I think this is that you need to understand your love of stopwatches <laughs> is not normal. <laughs> It is normal to a very select group of people. And they were all standing at the end of those swim lanes. I'm not sure those people are, but the roller derby people are. Did you bring your own stopwatch? Yes, I did, because you cannot trust what the, they're going to have on the other side. So, yes, I brought my own stopwatches. It was a four-day event, and I volunteered every day. I could only do half days. So in the first two days, I did the 7 a.m. to noon shift, and then... The second two days, I did like the 12 to 4. So I did bring my own stopwatches because I have Oslo stopwatches and they had the sport line. Their sport lines were actually quite nice, but my Oslo stopwatch is rounder. It fits in my hand better and the buttons are a little more tactile and the space in between the mode button and the start button is perfect for resting my finger. And on a sport line, it's a little narrower. That said, I, I did tell the guy handing out the equipment. We got a, a stopwatch. They had clipboards and pencils. Oh, for my everyone. God. That, and I know. I haven't. Did you get a whistle, and, too? Because then that would have been it. No. It, oh, don't get me started. They need the Fox 40s over in swimming. They're using pee whistles, and they don't work very well. So the, the guy handing out his stopwatches, I said, I brought my own. He's like, oh, you're a professional. <laughs> but my first day timing was 1500 meters 
And as we know from Tokyo, 1,500 meters is at least one commercial break. And if you're 70, one. And doing the entire 1,500 meters as butterfly. Oh, dear. It will take maybe 20 minutes longer than the last person in front of you in the heat. They were not happy. They got off schedule on that one. But 1,500 meters also meant you got a bell. Did you and get to I, ring the bell? I had to ring the <gasps> bell. Yes. Oh, my goodness. It was so exciting. It was just like 1,500 meters. How do you keep track of it? Well, we had special paperwork for this. We had Usually you had paperwork where you just wrote down your time. Because what we were as volunteer lane timers, we were the redundancies in the system. So when the swimmer hits the touchpad, that's the official time. Then you have... Uh, a plunger in your hand so it looks like you're playing jeopardy and you have that button in your hand. i know so two in one dreams right there and so when the swimmer hits the wall you hit both your plunger and your stopwatch at the same time and the the stopwatch is your third mode of redundancy so if all else fails and that happened like right away somebody didn't touch right and they went to my time I'm like oh this is the one where i am off not not horribly because it took me a while to figure out where to start timing but every session i gotta say my stopwatch matching the big board at least once a session that's because you Still are got a, it you are a professional that's right. So yes, we got to ring the bell. The paperwork was you kept time every lap. So that helped you keep track. And then it said bell lap for the bell. And you had to ring the bell from the flags to the flags. So when they hit that five meters to go flag, you rang and they flipped and you kept ringing it until they hit the flags again. Oh, so, so there's a whole was... technique for the bell ringing. Yes. Whole system. The next days were sprints and things like that. Found out that if you're timing, prepare to get wet because you will. And I switched after day two, I switched from pants to my little officiating skirt. I mean, I got to pull almost everything out again. My officiating skirt, my officiating shoes, my black socks until I had to switch to white socks because I didn't have any more black socks that were clean. Oh my goodness, that was great. But day two rolls around and we're in faster events and, oh, we were doing IMs. So the stroke judges were more on our sides looking to make sure that the swimmers touched correctly. So I'm chatting with them while swimmers are, are on the other side of the pool and just asking them what they're looking for and things like that. And you, you remember in the book, The Suspect, we read about Richard Jewell, how they made kind of a big deal. He was law enforcement wannabe. Yes. Okay. So in the movie, Richard Jewell, based on that book... Paul Walter Hauser plays Richard Jewell. And I, I talk to my second person and I hear Paul Walter Hauser as Richard Jewell's voice in my head, clear as a bell. I'm an officiating too. And then I stopped asking questions. Yeah. <laughs> but, but you were there with your Oslo stopwatch and everything was under control. Oh, and all was right in the world for a weekend. Good time. So yes, we have to keep going on this because there are more opportunities to cross stuff off that list, I'm sure. I'm feeling pressure now. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Maybe I'll just throw what? some crystals on my rug up here, spin around <laughs> with a ribbon and go pick them up. <laughs> One thing I am worried about when we go to Beijing is we're going to be like asking all of the people on the sidelines, so what is it that you do? Because it looks really cool. Well... Because here's the, the one thing we're going to run into, because there will not be any foreign volunteers. Oh. I'm assuming, have they made that? They have not, I don't know. No, they I haven't made the announcement official, but 
I, I, I'm going to throw it out there and say there aren't going to be any non-Chinese volunteers. So let's hope we can communicate. Maybe, but there's going to be at least somebody who can interpret stuff because they will have interpreters there. And maybe they've got expats from other countries living in China for various reasons who will also volunteer. With any luck, we'll meet George from the UK who's in China for some reason and he'll explain everything right. to us. Right, right. Get the ambassador's husband or something like that. All right, before... <laughs> All right, before we get to our interview, we would like to introduce our Patreon of the week. This week, our patron is the dulcet tones of Jason Bryant. Jason is one of our dedicated Patreon patrons, and their financial support really does keep the show afloat. We are grateful to Jason for so many reasons. I know. He's part of the family at this point. Right. And he can say all the speeches, all the announcements. Yep. Tell us how to pronounce all the names. Oh, Lord, that's helpful. So, Jason, thank you so much for your support and for being a patron. If you would like to know more about being a patron, too, you can find out at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. Time to get to our interview, and it is time to get in winter sport mode. So we are hitting the slopes with Paralympic al alpine skiing hopeful Michael Murphy. Michael is a sit skier and he talked with us about how his sport works. Take a listen. First off, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Alpine skiing, we know it's go down the hill as fast as possible, but what are some of the rules beyond that? Like what kind of parameters do you have for alpine skiing? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I, I really appreciate it. I've, I've been listening uh, to your episodes uh, the last few weeks, and it really is getting me excited for the ski season. Oh, good. Uh, I love the idea of keeping the flame alive because as you said, a lot of people, it's just every four years, but uh, for so many athletes, it's not every four years. It's a constant grind. So I've, I've really enjoyed uh, some of your recent podcasts. So, so I appreciate you having me on to talk about a little bit of uh, para-alpine skiing. There's a lot that goes into it, and, and I'm still learning a lot of this myself. I've been competitively racing for around four or five years now, so I'm still learning a lot of the, the little nuances of race day, of when you're in the course and, and what parts you need to focus on and, and where you can lose time and, and where you can win and lose a race type of thing. But would you like me to start sort of when you're at the top? So yeah, to start at the top of the hill and let's work our way down. So I'm just picturing myself up in the race start area with all teammates and competitors. And it, it starts off with, with I forget the name of the people who go down the course uh, and they test it out and test the timing out and usually it goes by sort of the discipline of your disability. Um, as a sit skier, we're at a serious disadvantage because we're always at the end. Usually you have your blind athletes going first. Usually your females go first and your blind athletes and then you're less physically impaired, so to speak. Um, usually a lot of the standing athletes go first, maybe somebody with uh, CP, or they might be missing uh, a limb. And then it sort of gets to the sit skiers at the end. And by that time, the course is so ran through and rutted, you have to accept the fact that the course you're gonna be on is not gonna be smooth, and of course, you have all the weather variables depending on the day. But you just have to, like our coaches teach us, 
You have to be good in the ruts. You have to learn how to just ride them out and just deal with them because that's six gears. Like I said, we're going at the very end. And so who knows what the course will be like. And usually it's not great. Um, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. It also depends on what race you're at, how many people are in the field that day. Forerunners, that was the word I was blanking on a, a minute ago. So when you're at the top, you're, you're like any sport, you're loosening up, you're trying to just get yourself in the right mindset. Some people listen to music, some people are doing their TheraBands just to loosen up their shoulder muscles, just getting into the right mindset. Some people don't like to talk to anybody. Some people are jabber boxes and they'll talk about anything and everything. And some people just want them to just shut up. <laughs> what are you? Are you a jabber box or are you shut up, please? Yeah, I'm right in between. I don't care really okay. if people are talking. I, I've always been the type where I, I can get along with everybody. I can get my mind right in any sort of situation, but I'm moving around. I'm constantly pushing back up the hill with my, with my outriggers to, to work on my biceps, my forearms, my triceps to make sure that they're firing on all cylinders, and not getting cold. But I love that race atmosphere up there at the start. Everybody's kind of in a good mood. If it's not downhill day, because on downhill day, everybody's a little bit more serious because the speeds are severely increased. Um, but if it's like a slalom or a GS or a super G, the atmosphere is always really fun because everybody, and especially in the para-alpine community, it's such a small community. So you really just have fun up there. And so uh, depending on where your standings are and where your times are from the season or a race before, that's what kind of order you go in. As a newer athlete, recent years up more towards the back just because I'm competing with guys who have gone to the Paralympics and who have won Paralympic medals. And I'm not a Paralympian, I'm a Paralympic hopeful. And so, which was one of the reasons why I appreciate you having me on the podcast because the stories and the guests that you all have had are, are amazing. It's so important to also see the other side, to see the ones who are still working to get there who haven't necessarily made it yet, but they're with the right coaches, they're training with the right teammates. And for me, those coaches and teammates are some of the best in the world. I train out of Winter Park, Colorado with a team called the National Sports Center for the Disabled. And it's one of the programs in the country where when it's the off season for the Chileans or the Kiwis down in New Zealand, they come to Winter Park. So they're training year round. And so I get to train and race with people from Team Great Britain, Team Chile, Team Japan, Team Australia, Team New Zealand. And so I get to be friends with all of these people, but they're also teaching me amazing things and teaching everybody else the little nuances of the sport and what to do and how to get there. And so even though I'm a Paralympic hopeful, I put myself in the right place and I'm surrounded by the right coaches and the right teammates. And so this is the people I'm surrounded with or surrounded by up at the top in the starting gate or as you're sort of one racer goes and, and you're hearing all the beeps and the countdowns and you're, you're watching the race officials and you're keeping an eye on the course and slowly one, one after another leave the starting, uh, the starting corral and, and it, the numbers dwindle down and and these are the people that I'm watching go ahead of me, these amazing athletes with so many different disabilities. And as one goes and another, your heart rate starts to flutter, you start to get 
the nerves start to build up, but it's a good thing. Because as um, so many athletes have told you, those nerves mean you're about to do something very important and meaningful to you. And it's not just something, oh, I'm just going to breeze through and go down the hill. So those nerves and, and butterflies are going as you get closer and closer to the start. And then you're in the starting gate. And for, for some people, it's kind of easier to get to the starting gate. As, as a high-level T9 paraplegic, I have one of the least functions of a lot of the people around me. I have my top two abs, but very little, versus some of the sit-ski athletes I'm with who they have all of their abs or can move some of their legs. Sometimes I like to shake a fist at them, sort of <laughs> jokingly jealous, uh, a little bit of jealousy, like, yo, can I have some of that ability, please? to help around some of the gates. But um, on the flip side, you only have to develop a two-pack instead of all That's these. true. <laughs> I only have to work on the two-pack. The rest <laughs> of it, it does what it wants, depending on what I'm eating on any given week or if I'm <laughs> in sport or on vacation. But it's amazing how those abs really come into play. And, and we all talk about and share our experiences about having the different levels and different disabilities. Some guys can get out of their wheelchairs, stand up, walk over to their sit ski. Some guys can't, but that's where you get your different factors come in and the time differences based on percentage of time and whether you're an L2, L1 or a 10-2 or a 12-1. I won't really go into what constitutes what mm -hmm. factor or, or what grade you get because that there's some controversy in that as well. Some people think yes. it's not a great system, but sort of what are our other options? But suffice it to say is that the idea is to, it's a golf, a handicap golf, to put everybody on the same level. But anyway, um, so when you're in the starting gate, I'm just hearing, I'm hearing those beeps in my head and the countdown. And then just the nerves are just at such a heightened level and, and your focus is all, it's almost like tunnel vision. Once that gate goes up and you push out, once you get around that first gate, you settle in. And I, I try to describe it to my parents sometimes, just the hyper-focusedness of it. I'm just in my own little world. Nothing else matters. I don't hear anything else except the snow or the ice underneath my ski. As you're looking a couple gates ahead and you're keeping your, your chest and your eyes focused downhill, trying to remember what your coaches worked on as you were doing the inspection ahead of time with all the other athletes to see, you know, which parts can I gain time on? Which parts do I need to really put the hammer down and not lose time? I, I mentioned places where you can win and lose a race and the flats, like you mentioned, when you're in the air, you don't, you don't want to be in the air for very long. Luckily, I don't, I don't really do a lot of the jump, so I'm not, there's very few times where I'm catching a lot of air. It's the flats where you can lose or win a race. That's what I'm, I'm hearing my coaches, Eric Peterson, I'm hearing his voice in my head, and I'm picturing the hill that I train on. And as you, you get down the first grade and then you reach this flat section, you really just want to put the hammer down because that's apparently where you really lose, you can lose a race essentially. But there's so many other things you want to think about, but you also don't want your mind to be racing. You almost want it just to be going through it smoothly, but you got to think about each gate. All right, am I taking this one high? Am I coming at it low? 
Where am I starting my turn? Where am I coming out of my turn? How am I going to hit the apex of the turn to slingshot me around? So all these little things are going through your head at the same time you're trying to just run the race. Whereas it's in practice, practice is where you want to think about all those little tiny variables. But human nature, you think about them anyway, and sometimes you have to block them out. And then you got to ride those ruts that are formed by all the other athletes going ahead of you, um, speaking as a sit skier. So there's so much that just goes into it. And, and, and it's so much fun to, to watch, to be a part of. It's, it's such a fun spectator sport too, especially if you're at a right venue where you can have spectators easily watching a race. And we're getting real close to, to that time of year again, where it's Time to, to battle the cold, which can be tough for a paraplegic who doesn't regulate body temperature well. So there's another variable when you can't feel your hands and your fingers when you're sitting in that starting line. So yeah, that's, is, is there any other little aspects of it? You oh gosh, to... Michael, we, we have just broken the tip. <laughs> when you have ruts in the course, what does that do? Does your ski get trapped in there and it's harder to get out of that when you're stuck in some line? And that may not be the line you want to be in? Typically, if all the racers ahead of you are doing the right thing, that divot, that sort of V-shaped divot, it should be right where you want to go around the turn. But each athlete has to approach it differently based on their ability level, their comfort level. So you could be outside of the rut and then you enter it at the wrong time and it can bounce you, jam on your shock, and it just ejects you out of the race course and boom, you're done. You're somersaulting out of the course and, and your race is over type of thing. But if you can hit the apex of the turn and you can find that, that divot, so to speak, that arcs nicely around the turn, you can just hit it perfectly and settle in and you just ride it smoothly and it just slingshots you around the turn and then out of it and then you can get back on a flat ski and turn it over for the next turn. It's a divot essentially, but if it's really bumpy, you can easily just eject yourself based on the shock setting of your mono ski. And again, that's just sitting, talking as a sit skier with essentially a motorcycle shock underneath of us. Yeah, those divots, they can, if it's really warm, they can get really massive and just big divots, especially in slalom. For downhill, how fast do you end up going? Let's say it's a fast day. It's not super, I would imagine slushy makes the course slower. Which is why even in, in non-para alpine, they ice the course, which to me is as more of like a still on the newer side. I'm not, I haven't been doing this for a dozen years like some of my buddy. It just seems crazy at times that they literally want to ride on a sheet of ice. That just I'm sorry, when you see the Lindsey Vaughns do that back in her heyday, and, and you know that the edges of their skis are just razor sharp to dig into that ice. But the speeds, it I mean, some of my buddies, they've gotten up to 50, 60, close to 70 miles an hour. I've, I've never hit that speed. I'm, I'm sure I've gone over 50 easily. But just some of the speeds can be absolutely crazy. And then when you pair those speeds with a crash, just some of the injuries can be absolutely devastating. I'm picturing Tyler Walker from maybe eight years ago, a former um, Team USA, a silver medalist, who's a double amputee. He just caught some air, I think going down a downhill race in one of the Paralympics, 
and just somersaulted, somersaulted and kept going. He had to get, I think, medevaced out of there. And I think he had a, I'm pretty sure he had a concussion and was just in a dark room for about a week. Elena Nichols, one of the most famed, accomplished female Paralympic athletes, she had a bad wreck a few years back that sort of put her out of contention to making what would have been her final uh, Paralympic appearance. Um, so some of the speeds can be, it can be really nerve wracking, especially for the spouses and significant others of the racers who are watching and, and can only just sit back and watch. And they see these crashes happen or they see the YouTube videos of these crashes and it makes them try to convince you to stop doing it. I, I'm not surprised. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. How do the speeds compare in slalom? Because that is more technical since you have tighter turns, right. but how much do you end up slowing down in that race? Um, I'm not sure if I could give you a mile per hour, but mm -hmm. on the spectrum of the speeds, you have your two technical events, your slalom and your giant slalom, and then you have your speed events, your super G and your downhill. As a high level paraplegic with not a lot of abs, I don't love slalom. Sometimes I, I like sometimes the idea of just colliding with the gates as a former football player and, and baseball player who just loves contact. I like hitting the gates. That's fun. But having to maneuver my big clunky rig, which we call we call our Sitsky's rigs, that can be tough at times. So typically your double amputees or your people with a lot more function, they typically do better at the slaloms, but the speeds are significantly reduced for, for slalom. I, I have buddies who, who focus on the speed events, your super junior downhill, and they just reluctantly, begrudgingly come out to training days when we know slalom is on deck for those days. But you can get up to good speeds in that too. You can get up to good speeds in giant slalom, um, which some will say is the most difficult of the four because it's a, almost a combination of your technical and your speed, the giant slalom. So it, it kind of, it really depends on the course. It depends on the caliber of the athlete. And it also depends on how much you're willing to just absolutely attack the course and send it, which the coaches say, you know, just attack, 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 and just leave it all out there just like any coach in any sport. So I guess it depends on sort of your mindset and how willing you are to just send it down a sheet of ice or send it down uh, a slushy course. That's sort of your technical versus your speed events. Let's talk about the rig. So I'll start from the bottom up. So you have your single ski. That's what I call mono skiing, sit skiing. You're essentially on a single ski and the bottom of the rig which can be made out of aluminum, titanium, with all your hardware in it that encases your shock that you sit on and, and it absorbs all your impacts. That clicks into the housing of your bindings, just like a typical ski boot. And then as you go up, it, it depends on the manufacturer, what design you have, but you'll have, essentially you'll have a foot plate that you put that and you put your feet in and you really want to strap your, your feet in as, and your legs and your body as much as you can. You're sitting in a bucket that's attached to all of this, this metal and the housing of the rig. And I guess it depends on what type of equipment you have, but that can be made out of composite material that can be designed specifically to you because some people might not have legs, so they don't need the foot plate. 
But for me, I have a pretty clunky rig and I, I'm, I'm due to, to test out new ones. But for me, in terms of the straps that are attached to the bucket and attached to the rig itself, I want to be strapped in as tight as possible. So if you think of a ski boot, if somebody's going down a hill and their ski boots are loose or they're not completely strapped down all the way, you don't have a lot of control. For me, I am strapped in as hard as possible from my toes, then I have one around my knees, I have another over my thighs, I have one at my waist, and I have one kind of up around my top abs. Um, some people don't need that because they have all their abs, so they just need a lot less material. But as somebody with very limited function, I need a lot of that strapped in. Because what I do with my shoulders transfers down through my bucket, through all those straps, down through the rig, and it transfers into the ski. So my motions, when I'm trying to go from edge to edge and really work the ski, that's coming from my shoulders and my chest and what I'm doing up here versus maybe an Andrew Kirka or somebody who can move their legs a little bit. They can push on the foot plate. If they get in trouble, they can use their abs to really sort of get them back where they need to be to prepare for the next gate. But essentially, any skier, if you're not strapped in tight, your movements are not going to transfer effectively down through your equipment and into the ski. So there might be a delay. If I'm loose in my abs, in my legs, if those straps are loose, there's going to be a delay of the responsive time from my shoulders down through my body, through the rig and into the ski. And that delay can cost you precious seconds or completely mess up your run altogether. Okay. And that makes sense. That's got to be fun to put that on. Once you sort of get used to it, it, you can go through the process pretty quickly. But if my legs are having a tight day or they're really spastic and they're not, not responding to what I want them to do, my legs get severely spastic. The muscles can fire on their own. Some people don't have that problem. And, and that's another variable when it comes to the factors. Everybody, every disability and injury level is just a little bit different. Somebody can be a T9 complete paraplegic exactly like I am and they might not have the spasms or it can be completely different. So that's something that can be tough. And if it's a really cold day, getting onto that ski from your wheelchair, hopping, transferring over into your bucket, getting your legs in, making sure you're all square in your seat, that can be a tough process, which is difficult to do with big heavy gloves on. So you're doing a lot of this in the bitter cold sometimes without gloves, and then you got to stop and you got to warm those fingers up. And then some, sometimes when you transfer over into your bucket, you just completely fall over into the snow. And so then you have to start all over again. You got to transfer back up into your chair. You may need some help from somebody. And meanwhile, all of your fellow teammates are just giving you complete crap and just laughing at you. So that's it. And it's funny, but it's frustrating too. Cause it's like, ah, like I did not want to fall today. It's like, and then onlookers are like, oh my, oh, can I help you? Can I help you? And you want to tell them, I swear I've done this before. I swear I know what I'm doing, but yes, I would love some help, please. So there's so many variables that can go into just getting in. And then, and then of course you have your outriggers. Outriggers essentially are for balance, for pushing yourself around. And if you think of loft strand crutches, where you see, might see somebody walking where 
there's a clasp around their forearms and their hands are holding on to a grip and it almost looks like single crutches in each arm, but that don't go up to your armpit. At the end of those, you have little tiny skis that flip down based on a string pulling mechanism where you pull the string in your finger grips and it releases the ski down into ski mode. And then you pull the string and it brings it back up into non-ski mode, which there might be little picks on the end of it to help push yourself across the snow to go from your chair over to the gondola or the lift or something. And you, you might use these outriggers for balance if you get into trouble. But yeah, that's the other component to the rig when it comes to monoski and sit skiing. And, and you'll see a lot of other athletes with these outriggers as well. They might be standing athletes who might have cerebral palsy uh, and they just need these extra little assistance. And we call these four trackers because they'll be using skis on their feet and then have uh, these outriggers. So they're making four tracks in the snow. But essentially that's sort of the last bit of the equipment that we use as uh, para-alpine skiers and sit skiers, mono skiers. With those four tracks, do you also have to try to, as, as you go down, try to see the ruts for your outriggers as well? Or is it just like there, and are those used mostly to keep you balanced? It can be a lot of balance. What you don't really want to do is rely and lean on those outriggers. Because if you're leaning, if you're making, I'll just call it a left-hand turn, which we call a right footer. If you're making a left-hand turn and you're leaning out over and you're putting all your weight onto that outrigger, you're not in the correct body position over top of your ski. So a lot of people, if they're going around a gate, they'll tuck that outrigger in, they'll put it ahead of them to get as close to those gates as possible. And there's a ton of amazing sit skiers out there. There's videos of them going down the hill with just no outriggers at all. They're just free of outriggers because they have the abdominal to do it, they have the function to do it, and they're also good enough that they have the technique that they can just go edge to edge and stay centered over top of the ski and within themselves where they're not leaning to the left or leaning to the right and just getting out of position. Okay, so I'm the money person. What's this cost? Oh man, you don't want to know. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, oh. No, because it's amazing because like in Parasport, everything is more expensive and yep. the resources are severely lacking. So that's yeah. one of the things like when we talk about education, it's like, okay, what's this cost you? Because it ain't cheap. We know that. But what are we talking? You're right. It's skiing in general. If you're an able body, that just that alone. And you, the joke is like for parents, like do not get your kids in, in ski racing unless you just want to just fork away all of that cash. And that's not even the adaptive side of it. Some of these rigs can cost up to five, six, seven thousand dollars. That's just the rig itself. Some even more than that, depending on if you have bells and whistles on it or the type of material it's made out of. And then of course you have the equipment, uh, the skis itself or um, the tuning equipment you might need to keep it up to par, up to snuff. Luckily, there's a ton of amazing foundations out there that offer grants like the Kelly Brush Foundation, the Challenge Athletes Foundation, High Fives. We need more of those to help get more people in the sport. 
because whether it's hand cycling, which was my first sport, or sits or adaptive skiing, or name that sport, and then it's adaptive component, it's not cheap. And then you add all of just the lifestyle stuff that we need to live, all of my wheelchair stuff, all of the equipment at home, or maybe stuff to outfit your home. So even if you're not an adaptive athlete, but you have a disability, that's an expensive lifestyle. I say lifestyle as if it's a choice. It's not. Don't let me get that confuse anybody. And then if you really want to just get into recreational adaptive sports, that's expensive. But then the competitive adaptive sports with a disability, you have your travel fees, your training fees, all of that adds up so very quickly. And a lot of people can't stay in the sport because of that. I've had friends who they've, they were at Winter Park with me for a few years and they had to move away with their fiance or their, or their wife or their husband um, just because of financial issues. And, and that's tough. And so it, to, to really get to the pinnacle of the sport, the, the national teams, the Paralympic teams. And if you're not sponsored and if you haven't really lucked into some grants along the way, it can be tough. We're, we're also lucky that with our coaches, there's a lot of hand-me-down equipment or organizations might just dump brand new skis in their box off with our coaches and then we'll buy it from them at, at a, a really reduced price, like $150 for a pair of new head Super G skis that would have been $900. So being a part of, of a team like the National Sports Center for the Disabled and their competition team, it does have benefits in, in that regard, but man, it's expensive. Yeah. It, is yeah. Not, it is not easy. Okay. So do you have different skis for each event? Like they, they require a different type of ski? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you, do you ever go, well, I only need one. Do I get a discount? <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's, it's funny. A lot of people, if somebody is new into the sport, they'll say, okay, go to your local ski shop, get to know them and say, hey, do you have any pair of skis where one of them is busted and the other one is just fine? And a lot of them will have it. And so you can get that single ski for nothing, for free or at a discount. Yes, absolutely. Wow. Um, but at the same time, if you only have one Super G ski and on the day of that race, something goes wrong, you don't exactly have a backup. So a lot of people, they will get the pairs because it's important to have maybe your slalom skis that you train with. And then the it's it's other half that is dedicated to, to race day. Always know you have a backup in case something breaks on the hill. So you're still gonna have a lot of skis. You're gonna have the shorter ones for the slalom, for easier, quicker turns, the slightly longer ones for, for your GS and then your Super G, and then your longest skis that just seem to take forever to turn are your downhill skis. Why so, are they longer? Because you want more stability. If you try to go down a downhill course on slalom skis, you don't have that surface area. You will, you will likely crash uh, just because of you don't have the control or the stability. Whereas the longer ski gives you the stability to go at those higher rates of speed. And then you slowly do a turn because and here's another thing about slalom, giant slalom, super G and GS. 
It's the distance from gate to gate. Slalom, gate to gate, is really short. Then it gets a little farther apart for giant slalom, and even farther apart from gate to gate for super G. And then the farthest apart is your downhill. So you want, and you always want to go be going from edge to edge. You don't want to sit on that flat ski. So you just, for downhill, you're slowly rolling it on edge and you're slowly making these big arcing turns for your super G and your, and your downhill versus the slalom where it's the quick turns one after another and you're really active in the turns. So that's why you need different equipment for each discipline because you can't do, okay, you can, but nobody wants to do a slalom course on downhill skis. That's, that'd just be ridiculous. It's funny to watch people try. <laughs> yeah, that's always fun. So speaking of the fast turns, how do you turn quickly? Like the mechanics of it? Because in my mind, I see people who almost lift their skis off the ground to yep. do that turn. Yeah. But, you know, you're in a rig. So how do you turn quickly? It's being dynamic in your movements you're for slalom. When I say dynamic, you're not passively going through the course. You are active. And by the end of it, you are out of breath, just like any event. You're out of breath at the end because you're so dynamic and active. And with for slalom, if you keep your chest and your eyes downhill and you're moving essentially your lower half, you can get out of one turn and into the next very quickly. Or people like the Andrew Kirkas or people who can literally maneuver their rig so well because they have leg function, they can walk a little bit. They are literally jumping out of one turn leaving the snow and, and as they come back and make contact with the snow again, their ski is in the fall line and perfectly aligned for the next turn. And, and that's the dynamic abilities that they have just to bounce from one turn to the next, essentially, it's crazy. Um, again, I'm shaking my fist because I, I don't really do that. And I'm still sort of getting to a place in the last couple of seasons where I more enjoy slalom than I don't but it still can be very tough to do that. It's just all about being active and dynamic in, in your ski, in the course, and just not being, not passively attacking or going from gate to gate, essentially. When you start learning how to do this, do you just end up making really wide turns and then they get smaller and smaller, tighter and tighter as you learn? It, it's important to have the right ski, depending on, on how quick of a turn you want. And whether that ski is in good shape, how, how well you take care of your equipment and the edges. If you have really sharp edges and you have an icy day, you want it to be able to hold on to that ice. And, and if you're not taking care of your equipment, your equipment's not going to take care of you when it comes time to race or practice. So that's another aspect of skiing and adaptive skiing is, is the time off of the slope in the locker room or at home waxing and edging your skis and doing all of the, the necessary stuff to prepare yourself to get out and train a race. Our coach always says, I think it's the six P's is the prior proper preparation prevents because poor performance type of thing. That's something we always, you always got to keep in mind. If you really want your ski to work in your favor, whether you're doing really tight turns for slalom or you're trying to hold really high speeds, during downhill. You've talked about edges a little bit. Do you always want them really sharp or is it going to depend on the conditions? 
I think you always want them sharp, but I think a more seasoned athlete who knows more of the technical aspects of the sport and knows more about the equipment, they might say otherwise, depending on the conditions. You also don't want it too sharp. That's why they have these little things to de-edge parts of your ski because it might catch you as you're going around a turn and, and, and it can be tough to get out of that turn. So sometimes there can be a downside of it being a little too sharp depending on the condition of the snow. All right. What you're wearing. What do you wear on your lower body? Because usually people have ski suits that seem like they're just not warm at all. I imagine this. None of this is warm. Right. Some of them can be kind of warm. So for me as a sit skier, I got the leggings on and I got the essentially the, the ski bib overalls, just like typical ski pants type of thing. Either some good boots or some really warm socks with some footies because I'll have a lot of people have a cover over their legs and it can be for aerodynamics. It can help with keeping your legs warm uh, and it can also protect your legs from the gate when you're hitting slalom gates. If you, if you watch Alpine sit skiers, they'll have the leg cover on if they have legs, but up top in a race day, you might have the long johns underneath on the top, but you probably have a race, a long sleeve race suit on that, It can be thick, but for the most part, it's pretty cold. So when you're sitting up at the top in the starting gate, you're bundled up. And then at the last minute, you're tossing off your jacket. And then you have coaches or or assistants bringing the jackets down for everybody. So yeah, it it can be, if the course is long and it's a particularly frigid day, once you get to the bottom, it can be shivering pretty good. Absolutely. But for the most part, you are, yeah, you're wearing a racer suit, depending on your level of ability, disability what you have covered up or, or not covered up. And then helmet of course, and goggles. Or, yep, absolutely. Or you'll have the face guard, like a, a single chin guard, if you're doing slalom, just so you don't break your nose when you hit a gate, so to speak. Have I, have not broke, I have not broken my nose, but I've yep. given myself a black eye going through the finish line when right at the finish line. There's a Super G race a couple of years ago on my home mountain at Winter Park. and. Right at the very end, as you get to the finish line, it drops down into the finishing corral. And I knew this because of the inspection that we go through maybe 45 minutes before the first forerunners go. But I wasn't prepared when I caught a little bit of air on the lip. So when I went off on a flat ski right through the finish line, I'd gone through the course. I was all excited. I hit the finish line and I hit that lip on a flat ski. And I, I probably just got three inches of air, just n- not much, but just a little bit. Where I landed, I came down on an edge and I completely just high-sided and face-planted, uh, direct hit my nose, my face onto the hard, compact snow, did a couple somersaults, and then just laid there for a minute until some guys ran over and you know made sure I, I was okay. But I had a really nice shiner that just looked really good. It made for some really good pictures. Uh, so, and, yeah. and, it, and, it, and of course, it, it broke the goggles that I had on. So yeah, I, I wore that one as a badge of honor, but also as a great reminder that even when you come to the finish, you are not finished. You have to really know every aspect of the course, where the dangerous parts, where can I get in trouble? Oh, there's a little bump here in between this gate and that gate. Be aware of that. I don't know if I was just excited to hit the finish line and didn't think I'd catch air at that speed, 
but I caught just enough and I wasn't paying attention and it just landed on that edge and boom, face plant. Uh, got on video too, which is it makes for so it's fun to watch that one. But it, it was a good, like I said, it was a great black eye, really good learning experience though. Um, road to Beijing. What is the path for you this season? What do you have to do to, so, to qualify? I'm going to be completely honest with you. The chances are very small because I've essentially, I've had to push back my goals four years. And so this, this is what I was talking about the road to make a team USA, to make a Paralympics. We see a lot of these amazing mm -hmm. stories of the people who got the golds and the podiums on TV. But the people who may not have qualified for the final round or they came in ninth or 10th, their stories of getting to that place are as equally as inspiring as the people who got gold, sometimes because of what they've had to go through. And some people haven't even gotten to that point yet, such as myself. I had a setback this past season where last season I had to sit out the entire season. I had a second spinal cord oh, injury, wow. which I had to have surgery on this past March. And I had to essentially after my accident in 2007, when I fell off a roof, um, they inserted 12 rods and a whole bunch of screws and they fused my back together. And right below where those fusions and, and the rods stopped for the last 14 years, the pressure on that spot has been building and it compressed my spinal cord to the point where last year around this time, they discovered it as a second spinal cord injury that changed a lot of stuff in my body where my doctors and myself and my wife, and we decided that I needed to sit out all last season to get surgery, to extend the fusion in my back, to add more rods and screws, to release the pressure on that L1 spot where it was the vertebrae was pinching my spinal cord. So that has not only caused me to push back all of my goals, which were originally for Beijing 2022, and now I'm looking at 2026 as I'm not even sure how my back is going to hold up because I haven't been on a ski since last December. And adding the, adding the variable of having a one and a half year old, which would require me if, to do all the things necessary to make Team USA and then to compete requires me to spend a ton of time away from this little dude who I've just become so in love with. So with the new back stuff, a new parent, it's one of those things when you're trying to be an elite level athlete, you have to factor in all these variables. And sometimes it doesn't always pan out for somebody who has been working for so long to be a Paralympic athlete. There's so many stories of people who they hang up the cleats, they hang up the skis, they hang up the equipment because of other priorities in their life. And I also don't know how my back is going to hold up. There's changes in my back that are different than before this recent surgery that I had. So as I go into the season in, in November, I'm just feeling my way. I'm feeling my way around. I'm, I'm going to take it slowly because at 36 now with a, a father and trying to expand our family, I, I got to think of other things other than just myself and the goal that I want. So that's mm -hmm. another interesting storyline to so many Paralympic stories or Paralympic hopeful stories is all the, you might be right in the right place and you're with the right coaches and teammates and you're qualifying and then boom, something happens where you have to adjust all of the goals that you have set. 
So that's kind of where I'm at right now. And it was tough this past season watching teammates of mine get invited to the national team, make podiums in national championships for the first time this last season. That was tough. That was really tough at times when I'm, I'm watching on my computer from the sidelines in my home in Denver. So who knows what's going to happen, but it's hard to just say I'm done because I set my Paralympic goal back in 2009, 2010, when I was a hand cyclist. I don't have a hand cyclist body, so I, I changed sports around 2015, but I still made that goal when I was watching reruns of the 2008 Beijing Olympics, and I would see these people on the podium, and I would recognize their drive and their abilities, and I would see those same abilities in myself, which is why I set the a Paralympic goal way before I was even in a place to be doing so. Thank you so much, Michael. Michael is also a motivational speaker and author of the book, When I Fell, How I Rerouted My Life and Found Strength in a Severed Spine. You could learn more about him at michaelmurphyspeaks.com and at whenifell.com. And as with all of the authors on our show, Michael's book is featured on our bookshop.org storefront. Pick up your copy at bookshop.org slash shop slash flamealifepod and support the show with your purchases. Uh, that sound means it's time for our historical moment. And this year we are focusing on Atlanta 1996, which is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. All right, my turn to tell you about judo. You have been teasing this judo story <laughs> to me for about three weeks. So, All and right. I did knew, no research so that you will be getting my, and I certainly did not watch judo in 96. So this is, this will be my absolute hot take. Well, hopefully I will deliver on this hot take. That's what I'm really worried about. But 1996 was just the second time that women competed in judo at the Olympics. And just keep in mind, judo places are gold, silver, two bronzes, two for fifth place and two for seventh place because they have a double bracket system going into that. So if you remember from Tokyo, judo is a very unpredictable sport in terms of who you think will win. And Atlanta was no different. So women competed in seven weight classes, and there is something amazing and or crazy about five of them. So we will run down the list. In the extra lightweight, we had in the gold medal match, it is Ryoka Tamura from Japan facing off against Kie Sung Hui from the People's Republic of Korea, which we also know as North Korea. She's in this tournament. She hasn't competed internationally ever. And the PRK has not competed internationally in a few years. But the Judo Federation say, hey, we're going to give you a wild card entry. And Kie Sun Hui got that entry. Tamura is the defending Olympic silver medalist. She was the flag bearer for Japan at the opening ceremony. She has been undefeated in the last four years. So in the finals, these two face off. This is a match. The crowd is so behind Tamura. They are so excited for her. Goes all the way to the end. And Kie pulls it out at the end. Snaps the 84-game winning streak. Takes gold. Tamura goes on to be one of the few women who won medals at five consecutive Olympics. This is not equestrian where the kind of sport where you see people staying for five games. She won gold at Sydney and Athens and bronze at Beijing. She married uh, Yoshimoto Tani, who was on Japan's baseball team at 96 and 04. Kie moved up in weight 
she continued her Olympic journey. She won bronze at 2000 and silver in 2004. Also competing in this weight class, American Hillary Wolf, who you might know as the sister in the movie Home Alone. <laughs> I know! And this is just one weight class. <laughs> Can you imagine John Candy getting on the judo mat? <laughs> Especially since this is the extra light category. <laughs> Moving on to the half lightweight class. This one was, went kind of as planned, but we actually have a Keep the Flame Alive connection to this weight class and this event because contributor Ben profiled American Marissa Poldula for the Pitt News ahead of the games. <laughs> She was a student at Pittsburgh. She was a graduate student in the Department of Biological Sciences. And I have a lovely article from Ben here that we'll make pictures of and share it on social. But yeah, he was pretty excited about that. In the lightweight category, Triulis Gonzalez from Cuba defeated Young Soon Young from Korea for gold. Triulis won this medal two months after she fractured cervical vertebrae. Oh, Okay. And there was a lot of controversial officiating, apparently. Really? So, yeah, I know. So one of Son Young's early matches had a bunch of controversial stuff, which may have helped her advance to get to be in the gold medal. But Adrilius won and is also one of those big-time Olympians for Cuba. In the half-heavyweight, we're, we're looking here at Ulla Verbroek from Belgium. Ulla was also in 92 games, and she left the Olympics with a broken knee and a leg in a cast. She couldn't compete for a year. She is facing off in the gold medal round against Yoko Tanabe from Japan. So, of course, again, because this is a sport of Japan, the crowd is behind her. Ula scores early. Tanabe has to catch up. And Ula gets the deciding score with two seconds left on the clock. Right? Well, so Bel she wins Belgians gold. and clocks. Right? First Belgian woman to win gold at the Summer Games. Really? And Belgium had been in the game since 1900. Belgium has a very long Olympic history. So this is the first woman. Wow. Yes. And then Belgium proved to be a heavyweight in this whole sport at, at Atlanta because they also had one of their athletes won a silver and another won a bronze. You never hear about Belgium in judo. I don't even know what to do with that. Oh. But then we get to the heavyweight category. And oh, this no. is where it really gets nutsy. I'm frightened. Well, there are two interesting stories out of this class. The first is the silver medalist, Estela Rodriguez from Cuba. She lost the gold medal to Sun Fuming from China. Estela also tested positive for a banned diuretic masking agent, but the IOC left her off with a reprimand, and she got to keep her medal. Oh, how things have changed. Ish. So that's not all from this category. Tying for seventh is Nancy Silva from Brazil. And we are still in gender testing kind of era. She had to go to extreme measures to confirm her gender. She was clearly a woman, but discovered at puberty that she also had male sexual organs. Okay. So what so, does this mean for her competitive career if she's what we now are calling intersex? Well, according to my favorite book by David Walczynski, the complete book of the Summer Games, said, according to Brazilian newspaper paper accounts, three months before the Games, 
she had an operation to remove her testicles and reduce the size of her clitoris. She is 19 years old at the time. How have we never heard that story before? I do not know. But there is an interesting article in The Guardian that has a whole bunch of athletes who were intersex or had mixed sexual organs like this. Silva went on to win two out of four of her matches at Atlanta. She went on to compete at Sydney, Athens, and Beijing. Uh, At Beijing, she... Uh, lost the bronze medal match and placed fifth. So that was her highest performance at an Olympics. Wow. Nutsy, nutsy stuff. Well, it reminds us how long the Castro Semenya issue has been going on. You know, this whole questioning of, are you, I mean, we've had stories even long before 96 that we've talked about. But even in an era where we were a little bit more biologically aware it's such a complex issue, and yet we try to make it so simple. Yeah, it's uh, really challenging. So, judo competition, pretty amazing in 1996. We, we do have a selection for our historical games for next year. We have Thanks. a winner. We do. Thank you to everybody in the Facebook group who voted, because this was pretty contentious. We had five different choices. And I am surprised are you surprised i am surprised so next year our historical games will be albertville 1992 because we did summer this year we wanted to do winter next year and we're already going to have an issue because i would pronounce it albertville oh yeah probably we should be pronouncing it albertville so before january we have to get if we are we you and i have to decide are we going to use the english pronunciation or the french pronunciation we yes we, we, we do. <laughs> oh, the French jokes that are coming next year. Oh, man. But am, it'll be exciting. I'm so excited about this one because we remember it, but we have holes. We were talking about it before the show, and we have holes in this one. Huge holes. I mean, this was, uh, Albertville happened when I was on study abroad. I was in Vienna and some of my classmates, they did go to Albertville and I believe they saw a bobsled. And I had decided not to go because it was on this bubble of cashing in my Eurail pass, which is good for like three months. And it was one of those, if I cash it too early, then travel after the semester is going to be really difficult. So I said, no. And then I, I it was in a living situation where I did not have access to TV and I had one friend who did and we would watch the figure skating competition so that's really all I saw of Albertville so we got stories we got stories oh my gosh I'm gonna have to watch like the whole opening ceremonies it's time for magique well coming in January retrospective of Albertville 1992 getting us in the mood for winter olympics exactly So thank you, listeners. This is exciting. I'm very much looking forward to it again. Hey, did you know our merch store is open again? Well, you do because you put it together. I do because I have been taking requests for designs. Yes. So there is a a welcome to Shukvastan design that is there. There was a a request for a Chuck Aoki design, which will be coming soon, I believe. I'm trying to get some licensing squared away on making sure I'm not going to get in trouble for using his name. So yeah, if people have anything they they want us to put together from things on the show, we are happy to put it on a t-shirt. 
Excellent. Excellent. We'll have a link to this in the show notes and you'll see it on social, but we are very excited to have March again. Welcome to Shook Fustan. Yes, it's the part of the show where we check in with our past guests who make up our team Keep the Flame Alive. Kelly Clays and playing partner Sarah Sponsel got to the quarterfinals of the FIVB World Tour, but lost to April Ross and Alex Kleinman in that round. But good season. Very impressive. Deanna Price served as Grand Marshal of the Homecoming Parade for her alma mater, Southern Illinois University. And then she made an appearance on Sunday Night Football, which I did happen to watch live. And I was so confused because <laughs> there's Deanna Price with all her enthusiasm, waving furiously at the camera and leading the crowd in chants. It was great. Oh, there are gosh, clips man. of it on YouTube if you want to go back and see the beautiful Deanna Price. Oh, I will definitely be looking for that. And then next week is Arizona State's Humanities Week. So this is when Shuklastanis Shuk collide. Book club author Andrew Marinus will be in a public virtual conversation with Shuklastani Dr. Victoria Jackson on October 18th. And we will have a link to that in the show notes. Beijing 2022 news. Cootsie going rogue. Cootsie <laughs> going rogue. I cannot talk about this without just laughing because it's what did you expect kind of thing. On Can so you... many levels. What did you expect them to say about this situation and who else would say it quite this way? So yes, John Coates, IOC vice president, was addressing the press in Australia and they asked him about human rights in China vis-a-vis -vis the Beijing 2022 Olympics. And he said that confronting a sovereign nation on human rights issues was not within the committee's remit. Coach said that the IOC's remit was only limited to ensuring that no human rights abuses take place in respect to the conduct of the games within the National Olympic Committees or within the Olympic movement. This is according to Forbes. Are we surprised that they don't care about it. Not that they don't care, but they're not going to take a stand on anything that does not happen within the Olympic bubble. I mean, half the time they don't take a stand on stuff that happens with the Olympic bubble. They pass it on to the national federations or the sports committees. So they're certainly not going to take a stand on something that's happening on the other side of the host country that has nothing to do with sports. Who cares if millions of people are getting slaughtered? Not our problem. Honestly, <laughs> you're asking for trouble from John Coates. <laughs> yeah. Well, to, and what made it so funny to me was that he was addressing the Australian press and the Australian press know John Coates. They set him up. Oh, he, he fell for it? Well, fell for it I, to the extent of they knew what his answer was going to be. Mm. How, how could you how could you be an Australian sports reporter and not know what John Coates is going to say if you ask him about international politics? They're either hoping he's going to go rogue, which we always love, or he's going to say something that makes the IOC look bad. And in this case, he it made the IOC look like they don't care about human rights. Right, which is their position. Which in is a sense. their position. So. For once, I say John Coates going rogue. He actually towed the IOC line on this, but he did it in that Coatesy, I hate you all kind of way. 
But on Saturn News, he did confirm in the same press conference that he will be stepping down from his role as Australian Olympic Committee president in May, which is when the AOC will have its next General Assembly. He will continue on the IOC through Paris 2024. So we've got Coetzee for not that much longer. And Dick Pound, our other favorite IOC member to go rogue, I believe is retiring after 2022. Yeah, this is his last year. And I I think part of it is age limits. But yeah, Dick Dick Pound stepping down. That's going to be. So we need some new Mavericks to step right? up. Kristen Klosser Austin, I'm looking at you. And she's now a member of the executive board. I so, know. yes. Other Beijing news the torch relay will start on Monday. This is crazy. Monday the 18th, they will light the torch in Olympia. They'll have a few torchbearers carry it, take the flame to Athens, and the next day will be a handover ceremony, and then the flame will head to China. So, this is a much, much, much more scaled back torch lighting ceremony and the time that the flame will be in Greece. But everything will be toned down this year. It'll be interesting to see how things unfold and what happens for 2024. Right. Will they bring it back to full or will Mm -hmm. they scale it back? Though the Olympic flag did that tour in France of all the different town halls. But that was very controlled in the way like you put it in town hall People could probably go see it, but it wasn't this swooping all these crowds coming down at once. Right, right. Or just at that point, they don't care if we all die of COVID. They're tired of putting the restrictions in. It's a long time to hopefully we're settled with this pandemic by 2024. We have volunteer jobs to get to. They got to get this thing straightened out. That's right. Anyway, on that note... That will do it for this week. Let us know what you're looking forward to watching at the Beijing Paralympics. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com. Call or text us at 208-352-6348. That's 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta. And keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, we're so excited about this. Our very first guest, Bob Slutter, Josh Williamson, will be back on the show. So be sure to tune in for that. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. <laughs>